On the afternoon of 4th of July weekend in 1991, Douglas Wagg Jr. rode off on his bike in hopes of joining in on some of the festivities. But Doug never made it home, and the next time he was seen was as he lay across a stretch of railroad tracks under the dim headlamp beam of an oncoming train. In this season of Counterclock, investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra is turning back the clock to dive into exactly how Doug died and how he ended up on the tracks so far from his home. But while Delia's investigation for this season of Counterclock started as a look into one man's suspicious death, what she uncovered is so much more. A string of crimes, a growing number of mysterious deaths, and cases so baffling that make this season of Counterclock the most intense investigation yet. Join the Crime Junkie fan club to binge all episodes of Counterclock Season 6 now, or listen to new episodes weekly, wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation, along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. On July 16, 1973, an unknown assailant chased down 21-year-old Penny Sarah in a New Haven, Connecticut parking garage, claiming her life with a single stab wound to the chest. It was a brazen attack in broad daylight, and the crime put the city on edge. But investigators had abundant evidence to work with. Bloodstains and fingerprints covered Penny's car and the garage itself. Surely the crime would be solved and the perpetrator apprehended quickly. Unfortunately, that was not reality. Penny's case went cold, but not without enormous speculation and rumor while investigators waited for a break in the case. Finally, advancements in forensic science and DNA analysis would reveal a new primary suspect in the case of Penny Sarah in the mid-1990s. He'd be the fourth suspect publicly named by investigators. Did they really have a handle on the case? Would they be successful finally securing a conviction at trial with this suspect? In part two of Penny Sarah's story, you'll hear about the new team of investigators assigned to her case and their efforts to understand the events of that July day in 1973 in a new way. Plus, the two new suspects they identified and the unsuccessful attempts to arrest one of them before moving on to another. I'm Kylie Lowe, and this is Dark Down East. Nineteen eighty-seven was a rough year for the case of Penny Sarah. After a years-long battle in Superior Court and then the Supreme Court of Connecticut to bring former suspect Anthony Galino to trial, a Hail Mary blood typing test cleared him of all charges the night before proceedings were scheduled to begin, and it sent the investigation back to square one. It was undoubtedly disheartening and perhaps embarrassing for detectives. But the enormous setback weighed heaviest on John Sarah, Penny Sarah's grieving father. John Sarah wasn't beaten down by it, though. He was steadfast in support of his daughter. He renewed his own work to keep attention on Penny's case. The advertisements in the local paper began again, as did his frequent check-ins with police. In September of 1987, 
John Sarah penned a letter to the chief state's attorney, John J. Kelly, imploring Kelly's team to take over the investigation of Penny's murder from the New Haven Police Department. Let it be a lesson. Never underestimate the power of a well-written letter. The state's attorney's office did take over Penny's case, alongside the Connecticut State Police Forensic Science Laboratory. This move changed the course of the investigation, bringing new eyes, fresh perspective, and a unique strategy to a case that desperately needed it. A joint review of the case by the two agencies in the late 1980s, more than 15 years and one arrest later, raised some important questions that previous investigators hadn't noticed, or at least hadn't tried to answer. And so it was decided that reconstructing the crime scene and reenacting the crime would help current investigators better understand what happened that July day in 1973. It took 13 months of planning, analyzing witness statements, reviewing evidence, and writing scripts, before a team of more than a dozen law enforcement officers were ready to reenact what the evidence said happened in that New Haven parking garage 16 years earlier. Lynn Tuohy, a reporter for the Hartford Current, attended the reenactment on a warm September afternoon. Tuohy wrote that the point of the reenactment was to solidify timestamps for the events of July 16, 1973, between 12.43 p.m. when a ticket was printed at a self-service kiosk at the George Street entrance of the garage, and 12.51 p.m. when that same ticket, wet with blood, was handed over to an attendant in the Frontage Road exit booth. John Sarah was there, looking on as investigators ran through the series of events once, twice, dozens of times. There was a mock chase from a dummy car to the stairwell, a fake stabbing of a criminalist playing the role of Penny Sarah, falling to the ground at the bottom of the steps, red spray paint dripped precisely to mark an exact trail of blood, and car tires squealing as the car mimicked pulling out of the garage onto Frontage Road, though the original exit no longer existed. Dr. Henry C. Lee was director of the Connecticut State Police Forensic Crime Lab by this point, and he was there for the reenactment, making notes after each run-through of the script, carefully clicking a stopwatch to mark every important event over the course of the attack. For several months after, investigators pored over what they learned from the reenactment, but it was just the beginning of the renewed investigation. Detectives interviewed over 250 people, some of them for the first time. They leveraged new methods of forensic analysis that weren't available to the investigation in 1973. Anthony Galino even participated in the new investigation. Lynn Dewey reported for the Hartford Current that he voluntarily gave blood samples for DNA testing, and the analysis further cleared him as a suspect. In March of 1990, Chief State's Attorney John J. Kelly announced in a two-page statement that advancements in fingerprinting techniques and blood analysis were revealing new information in the investigation. Though Kelly kept those details confidential at the time to prevent a perfectly tailored false confession, Lee summarized the known facts of the case in his book, Cracking More Cases. First, detectives definitively concluded that the Temple Street garage was the primary crime scene, and the attack likely started on the seventh floor and continued up to the 10th floor staircase. Based on placement of the blood evidence, investigators determined that the assailant was likely injured on their left hand during the attack. As was already known to the investigation, Penny died by a single stab wound with a knife-like object. All of the evidence led investigators to conclude 
that the murder was likely one of two scenarios. She knew her attacker, and their meeting in the garage that day was planned. Or Penny and her killer were total strangers. Lee wrote that it was possible the killing was, quote, an act of totally random chance, perhaps the action of a psychotic, end quote. On the point of motive, neither rape or robbery seemed to fit based on the crime scene patterns established. However, further testing on Penny's clothing did find traces of sperm on her underwear and slip. It was assumed that this was unrelated to the crime, though it was impossible to determine when it was left on her undergarments. The investigation never established through DNA testing whose semen it was. Each piece of evidence still held in the case was reanalyzed to understand its importance and connection to the case. In part one of this story, I told you that the garage attendant who called 911 after finding Penny's body that afternoon had found a brown wig laying on the garage floor, and it was collected as evidence. However, the renewed investigation established that the wig was not considered forensic evidence after analysis, despite finding two hairs that were not part of the wig intertwined with its strands. The wig had been handled by people at the scene before it was collected, and therefore was likely contaminated. Later on, Penny's sister Rosemary would explain that the wig was a partial fall hairpiece, and it was worn by her sister that day, and it was part of the reason why she wanted to drive the Buick. If Penny had driven the other family car a convertible Mustang, her hair would have gotten windblown. Computer imaging and digital fingerprint analysis was cutting-edge forensic technology in 1990. It made comparing prints found on the car and items inside the car to fingerprint cards in a database a much more efficient process thanks to an automated system. According to Dr. Henry Lee, the Automated Fingerprint Identification System, APHIS, was used by a number of jurisdictions across the country as well as the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP, and the FBI at the time. And so, the print from the tissue box in the car and others found at the scene were digitized and added to APHIS. There were no hits, not at first, but if any popped up, the participating agencies promised to inform investigators working on the Sarah case. It was a waiting game, more waiting in a case that had already lingered unresolved for nearly two decades. In September of 1989, the same month of the reenactment, John Sarah posted a large sign in front of his auto garage on Forbes Avenue in New Haven. It read, Use caution in Temple Street Garage. His ads with Penny's photo kept running in local newspapers. Joseph Brady of the New Haven Register spoke with John in the midst of the renewed investigation. He told the reporter, quote, This is not an obsession with me. It's that I'm determined. I know some people are going around saying I'm obsessed. I don't like that wording. I'm still working. I'm still functioning. Anybody who's got a daughter or any family member murdered, I'm just doing the same thing you would do or anyone else would do if something like this happened. End quote. Anthony Galino was given the chance to weigh in on all the efforts to identify a new suspect in the case after he was cleared of the charges. He told the New Haven Register, quote, They will never, ever solve this case. They are leading this guy John Sarah on because there will never be another arrest in this case. End quote. Meanwhile, the New Haven community continued to talk. Their chatter was spurred on by a segment airing on the CBS program 60 Minutes about Penny Sarah's case. The producers of that segment angled the spotlight of the piece 
on Penny's former fiancé, Philip DeLietto, once again. Phil professed his innocence on the program and challenged New Haven police to arrest him. He later told the New Haven Register, quote, I stick by my original statements. If they had a charge on me, they would have made it. I don't have anything in writing, but my understanding is state investigators cleared me the first week of the investigation, and that was it. I believe this was mishandled from the beginning, and the killer walked, end quote. How much longer would the killer walk? In the summer of 1994, it seemed like the wait for justice was almost over. Almost. We're finally emerging from winter here in Maine, and I think it's now safe to pack away my parka and sweaters and dig out my shorts and sundresses. If you've been wanting to update your wardrobe for this next season and beyond without spending a fortune, Quince is for you. Quince has timeless pieces like premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Before I buy anything, like clothing, accessories, stuff for my home or my daughter, I check Quince first because they always have identical items for so much less. I recently bought a neoprene carry-on bag from Quince that looks designer, but is a fraction of the designer version's price tag. I also just added to my cart a silk skirt and a linen top that I'm going to be living in with some light wash denim this summer. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash downeast for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash Downeast to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash Downeast. For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in. Like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking... I might feel some pain at some point, but with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Just days after the 21-year anniversary of Penny Sarah's murder in 1994, a Connecticut state prosecutor submitted a 40-page application for an arrest warrant to a judge. According to reporting by Josh Kovner for the New Haven Register, the warrant outlined DNA and other evidence linking a new suspect to Penny's killing. The suspect named in the affidavit, who I'll refer to as Suspect C, had once been a patient at the dental office where Penny worked, and he co-owned a restaurant next door to that dental office. The man's name was also printed on a few bills found on the dashboard of the Buick Penny drove on the day of her murder. Suspect C was identified as being of Albanian descent. You'll remember that the ticket agent had said the man with the bloodied parking ticket spoke with a foreign accent. And he more closely matched the witness's description of the man seen chasing a woman in the garage that day. Tall, thin, and long dark hair. The Warren application outlined several witness statements regarding this suspect's alleged previous attacks on women. No charges were ever filed against him for these attacks, but the women did report their experiences with the suspect to police. One of the alleged attacks 
was just a month before Penny's murder. The New Haven Register reported that suspect C had once been arrested, charged, and convicted of arson in 1977 after he set a four-alarm fire that destroyed the restaurant he co-owned with his brother. He served three years of a three- to seven-year sentence, receiving parole in 1984. He then moved to Texas, where Connecticut investigators caught up with him in 1994. Police told him that he was a suspect in the Penny Sarah murder sometime in 1992. And from the beginning, the man was cooperative with the investigation. He answered investigators' questions and even gave samples of his blood. But via his attorney, the man consistently denied any involvement in Penny Sarah's killing. He didn't even remember Penny, though he did remember going to the dentist's office where she worked. The blood samples the man gave were found to match blood evidence found at the scene of Penny's murder. According to the affidavit, the particular makeup of both the suspect's blood and the blood found on the evidence occurs in only 2% of the U.S. white male population. Investigators also noted a scar on the suspect's left hand. It was consistent with what they believed Penny's killer would have received in the attack. Over the course of two years, Investigators built the case against Suspect C and were confident enough in their findings to apply for that arrest warrant in 1994. But it apparently wasn't enough for the state's attorney and the chief state's attorney who passed off the application without signing it to a superior court judge, who was the only authority who could override the rejections and sign it himself. But Judge John J. Ronan also rejected the application. The warrant was not issued, and the suspect was not arrested. But investigators weren't finished with suspect C yet. In 1995, a second application for an arrest warrant for the same man authorities tried to arrest a year prior was submitted again to a judge for signature. The new application referenced much of the same evidence against the suspect as before, but listed a few additional facts for the judge to consider. The New Haven Register obtained the application and writer Elaine Griffin reported on its contents. The application detailed an interview with a friend of Penny Sarah who said Penny confided in them that she slapped a guy who tried to touch her while she was at a lounge in downtown New Haven. That same man somehow tracked Penny down, the friend said, and tried to approach her near the elevator in the Temple Street parking garage. In a second interview with the same friend four years later, they told police that Penny complained about a man she referred to as the Greek, a name police assumed referred to the suspect who was actually Albanian. Again, Penny told the friend that she slapped this man for annoying her. In 1993, detectives spoke with the friend again and obtained a signed statement that said Penny complained about the Greek again and said he was a patient at the dental office and that he had physical contact with her, possibly touching her breasts when they were both in the elevator at the Temple Street garage. Though this signed statement and the previous interviews with Penny's close friend further bolstered the state's case against Suspect C, the second application for an arrest warrant in 1995 was also rejected. Apparently, there wasn't enough to make an arrest, and in that case, certainly not enough to take it to trial and receive a conviction. All while these arrest warrant applications were working their way through the state's attorney's office and falling short of a signature, the investigation was still ongoing. Though authorities felt that suspect C was their guy, their second guy, for
for the murder of Penny Sarah, a hit on fingerprints a few years later pointed them to yet another suspect. In 1994, the same year as the first arrest warrant application for Suspect C, a man named Edward R. Grant was arrested in Waterbury, Connecticut for allegedly beating his fiancée. The woman was hospitalized as a result. However, the charges against Edward Grant were later dropped. Not before he was fingerprinted, though. Edward Grant's fingerprints were added to the state automated fingerprint identification system, APHIS. It took three years, but in 1997, there was a hit on those prints. They matched the partial bloody print on the tissue box found on the backseat floor of the car Penny Sarah was driving on the day of her murder. The fingerprint match in and of itself was not enough to secure an arrest warrant for this now third or technically fourth suspect in Penny's death. As was proven by earlier attempts to arrest suspect C, the prosecution needed an exceptionally convincing case before they'd get their warrant application signed. And so the team of investigators began to stack up the evidence, starting with informing Edward Grant of the fingerprint match and asking him a few questions about his whereabouts on July 16, 1973. After hearing his Miranda rights, authorities interviewed Edward Grant. He said he didn't know Penny Sarah, but according to Dr. Henry Lee's book, Grant also couldn't say where he was on the day she was murdered. Police told him there was a quick and easy way to put this whole thing to bed. Volunteer a blood sample. Edward hadn't yet lawyered up, but he knew enough to refuse to give a sample. That didn't matter to investigators, really. They could get Grant's blood with the help of a warrant, which was soon approved. Edward Grant's blood samples, along with his fingerprints, were sent to an advanced lab in Colorado for DNA testing and careful comparison to prints found at the murder scene. A DNA testing technique known as STR, which stands for short tandem repeat, was brand new at the time and only required small amounts of DNA. The STR technique found that Edward Grant's blood matched the blood found on evidence in Penny Sarah's car with 300 million to one certainty. Translation, science said Edward Grant's blood was definitely at the scene of Penny Sarah's murder. Before the news of the fingerprint and DNA match was made public, before the arrest warrant was even issued, there was one man that investigators had to update on the case progress. Penny's father, John Sarah. John was brought up to speed on what was happening with his daughter's case. He knew investigators were closing in on another suspect, and that this time, new forensic technology made them more confident than ever that they had the right person for the crime. But on November 5, 1998, John Sarah passed away without ever seeing the person responsible for his daughter's murder face justice. Seven months after John passed away, authorities finally had enough additional evidence to close in on Edward Grant. The warrant for his arrest was issued, and on June 24, 1999, detectives arrested Edward R. Grant for the 1973 murder of Penny Sarah. Coincidentally, it would have been John Sarah's birthday. The arrest was a posthumous gift to the man who fought until his death to find out who killed his daughter. Edward Grant did not resist arrest. He was calm and unreadable as he hugged his girlfriend, asked for a glass of water, and then handed off his wallet and followed officers into a waiting cruiser. As he sat in the back seat of the police car, 
Edward Grant leaned over to the officer beside him and remarked that a recent arrest of a serial killer in Texas was made, quote, from a single thumbprint, too, end quote. Who was Edward Grant? Why was he just now being connected to a case that haunted the New Haven area for over a quarter century? It turned out that Edward had never been a suspect because it seemed that he was a completely random stranger who committed a completely random act of fatal violence. His name never came up in earlier interviews. No leads ever sent investigators in his direction. Not until DNA tied him to evidence at the scene. Edward Grant had long been a resident of Waterbury, Connecticut, living on Atwood Avenue first with his ex-wife and their children, and most recently with his girlfriend. He worked at his family's auto repair shop and towing business for most of his life, and was a member of the National Guard until 1971 when he was involved in a serious car accident. Dr. Lee wrote in his book that either Grant was driving while intoxicated, or he was a passenger in a car driven by someone under the influence when the car rolled. Reports say that after surgery to place a metal plate in his head, he suffered from memory loss and extreme mood swings. Friends of Edward Grant, who spoke to the Hartford Current following his arrest, said that it didn't seem like something Eddie would do. He was nice but kept to himself, one friend said. Another doubted the arrest too, saying, quote, I've known him from the day he was born, and that boy is not a murderer, end quote. A relative, however, remembered Edward Grant as violent and unpredictable. Edward Grant's bail was set at $1 million, and he actually posted it. His team of public defenders, led by Tom Ullman, then began to challenge the charges against him, contesting the evidence and arguing that the storage at the state's laboratory was insufficient for preserving the blood and fingerprint evidence for over 25 years. Ullman and his team pointed out that the evidence wasn't kept in any sort of refrigerated storage and the human blood samples had likely decayed to the point where further forensic testing wasn't possible. The prosecution, of course, worked to negate these claims made by the defense, demonstrating that investigators followed an exceptionally strict chain of custody protocol throughout the years, as well as proper evidence storage protocol for blood samples, which had long been industry standard and acceptable in many other cases. The defense also called into question the state's two separate attempts, once in 94 and once in 1995, to arrest a different man for the crime. At one time, investigators were confident in the evidence against Suspect C, but when Edward Grant's defense tried to use the evidence in the arrest warrant applications to get the charges against their client dropped, the state argued that they actually didn't have a strong enough case to arrest the other guy. Judge John C. Blue is quoted in the New Haven Register reflecting on this contradiction, saying, It's kind of anomalous, don't you think? for the state to submit two arrest warrant applications for one suspect in a high-profile case, and then later on, when there's another suspect, to argue in a brief that there's no probable cause, end quote. The judge ultimately ruled that some of the evidence against that other suspect, Suspect C, would be allowed at Edward Grant's trial. It was a small win for the defense team. Now, it's not uncommon for a trial, especially in a high-profile case like this one, to be delayed a year or two as the pretrial motions are filed and heard by a judge. But I was surprised to see that the pretrial phase in Penny's case lasted three years. It speaks to the complexity of bringing a case to trial that had already made it to this phase once before and then fell apart at the last minute. But unlike over a decade earlier with Anthony Golino, 
there was no last-minute blood test to set the suspect free. The murder trial proceeded as planned, beginning on April 29, 2002. Are you an annoying coworker? Sending emails when everyone else is sleeping? Do they ask, how do you sleep at night? Then you should go to Mattress Firm. They have knowledgeable sleep experts that can help you find a better bed like a Tempur-Pedic. It has technology to keep you cool at night, meaning anyone, even people like you, can sleep. Get matched at Mattress Firm. Sleep at night. Restrictions apply. See store or website for details. There's a story behind every murder, but is there an ending? That's the question being asked by Murder True Crime Stories, a Crime House original podcast powered by Pave Studios. I'm Carter Roy. Join me as I tell the story of a famous solved or unsolved murder. New episodes release every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Murder colon True Crime Stories. Prosecutor James G. Clark addressed the jury in his opening statement, summarizing the state's case against the man sitting at the defendant's table and the advanced forensic technology that allowed investigators to uncover the truth about who killed Penny Sarah more than 20 years after the fact. Clark stated, quote, The fingerprint belongs to Edward Grant, but the investigators in the Sarah case did not know that in 1973, end quote. He went on to tell the jury about the thumbprint in blood found on a tissue box in Penny's car and Grant's blood type matching the same type as blood on the scene. Likely in anticipation of the defense's strategy, the prosecution mentioned alternate suspects in the case and then quickly encouraged the jury to put the idea out of their minds. The DNA evidence didn't match any other suspects. It matched Edward Grant. Meanwhile, Opening arguments by public defender Tom Ullman outlined key points for the defense, which weighed heavily on possible other suspects for the murder of Penny Sarah. Ullman told the jury that the New Haven Police Department tried to arrest another man, not Anthony Galino, not Edward Grant, but a third suspect two separate times. Ullman argued that the state had abundant evidence pointing to this third man as a more likely suspect than their client Edward Grant. The defense also planned to demonstrate that Grant had a strong alibi, having been in Vermont at the family cabin on the date of the murder. There's no way he could have gotten back to Connecticut in time to murder Penny because flooding was so bad in the area following a string of thunderstorms, they said. Plus, the defense stated, Edward Grant had no motive to kill Penny Sarah. During the first day of the trial, large photos of Penny Sarah were projected on a screen for the whole courtroom to see. Christopher Keating reported for the Hartford Current that gasps and groans were audible as the photos flashed onto the screen. The prosecution called several witnesses to speak to the fingerprint, blood, and DNA evidence they had against Edward Grant. In his book, Cracking More Cases, Dr. Henry Lee summarized testimony from the lead criminalist at the Connecticut State Police Forensic Sciences Laboratory DNA Unit, Dr. Carl Ladd. Dr. Ladd testified that the chances of the blood at the scene not matching defendant Edward Grant was 300 million to one. Later testimony by another DNA expert said that the probability could have been as high as 4.2 or even 6.1 trillion to one, depending on which population database was used to generate the scale. The blood each witness referenced was found on a white handkerchief on the floor of the garage. 
The defense was also particularly concerned with these blood samples on the handkerchief, but attempted to argue that the age of the samples and storage over the previous decades had degraded the evidence. Dr. Ladd told the court under cross-examination that yes, the blood samples were old, but the genetic profile identified from the samples would not and could not mutate to represent the genetic profile of another person, no matter what conditions they were stored in. The prosecution also presented sketches created from eyewitness descriptions of the man seen in the garage on the day of Penny's murder. The sketches looked a lot like Edward Grant at 29 years old, his age in July of 1973. An expert on latent fingerprints named Christopher Grice was the final witness to testify for the prosecution. Grice told the jury that the fingerprint on the tissue box, the one that initially pointed the investigation to Edward Grant, matched, quote, to the exclusion of all other people, the prints that were collected from Edward Grant when he was arrested for allegedly assaulting his fiancée in 1994. Under cross-examination, Grice allowed that it was impossible to know when, how, or why the fingerprint was left on the tissue box in the back of the car, and that there were other prints found at the scene that were still unidentifiable. With that, the prosecution rested their case, making way for the defense to call their witnesses, an attempt to drum up reasonable doubt in the minds of the jury. Based on the opening statements, it was expected that the defense team would do everything in their power to convince the jury that any of the alternate suspects were more likely perpetrators of the murder. A majority of the testimony, in fact, focused on the dental patient suspect, Suspect C. The defense explained that Suspect C was the primary suspect in the case during the early 1990s. The two applications for arrest warrants proved that. According to reporting by Christopher Keating for the Hartford Current, the defense team focused on the three main characteristics of Suspect C that fit the profile police had developed of Penny's killer. He had a foreign accent, he had a scar on his left hand, and he knew Penny Sarah. Through witness testimony, Edward Grant's lawyers demonstrated that their client didn't fit any of those primary characteristics. The defense also angled to suggest that the evidence and blood samples kept in the case for nearly 30 years were degraded due to the storage conditions they were under. Defense witness William Petzold used to work at the Meriden, Connecticut Forensic Laboratory in the 1980s, and he was assigned to Penny Sarah's case. He told the jury that the evidence was kept in a utility room that could reach upwards of 100 degrees. Petzold said, quote, In the summertime, it was oppressively hot. End quote. Another witness for the defense, a DNA analyst named Catherine Colombo, testified that high temperatures can damage DNA samples. Quote, Samples are best preserved if they're in a cool, dry environment." End quote. Further trying to discredit the evidence against Edward Grant, the defense called Edward's first wife to the stand. The white handkerchief found at the scene with Edward's blood type all over it was a key piece of evidence against him. But his first wife said that in all the years she did his laundry, she never saw a white handkerchief like it in Edward's pockets. This, however, was in direct contrast to what Edward's sister had testified earlier for the prosecution, saying that her brother did use a white handkerchief. Although they wanted the jury to believe that the blood samples were degraded to the point of being useless, the defense never actually denied that the fingerprint on the tissue box found in Penny's car was Edward Grant's. It was something they couldn't reasonably refute. They did argue, though, that no one could prove when, how, or why the print was on the tissue box. 
suggesting that it could have been left at another time, not in the midst of the murder. Edward Grant's original alibi, meanwhile, which the defense had referenced in opening statements, seemed to unravel at the edges towards the end of the trial proceedings. Though they previously said that Edward was stuck in Vermont due to flooding on the date of the murder, they later learned that the string of thunderstorms that supposedly caused that flooding had actually occurred later in the summer. The alibi was no longer a useful element of their defense. The trial slugged forward for 17 days. It was almost Memorial Day weekend in 2002, when closing arguments were finally delivered. During those final remarks to the jury, the prosecution reiterated the three primary elements of their case against Edward Grant. The fingerprint match, the DNA and blood sample match, and the visual description and sketch that matched. The state also finally presented what they believed to be a reasonable motive for Edward Grant to kill Penny Sarah. They suggested that it was possible Edward was trying to steal the car and Penny, the young woman who stepped up as the motherly figure when her own mom passed away, would have fought to protect her father's Buick. The defense objected to this motive speculation and Judge John C. Blue told the jury that they should consider a lack of motive as one reason to acquit Edward Grant, but it could not be the only element that provided reasonable doubt. In their own closing arguments, the defense urged the jury to consider how the blood evidence, the 29-plus-year-old bloodstains, had been stored, and insisted they were compromised. And then they also tried to suggest that investigators planted Edward Grant's blood on the white handkerchief found at the scene. The assistant public defender saying to the jury, quote, there's something just not right about the handkerchief, end quote. Krista Lee Rock quoted the defense team's Thomas Ullman, who told the jury that if you reverse-engineered the evidence to fit Edward Grant, nothing lined up. Edward Grant would have had to go to New Haven, where he didn't live or work, in a car he didn't drive, change out of his usual work attire, find Penny Sarah, commit the murder within 25 minutes, quote, put on his Phil DiLietto mask, assume a foreign accent, make a, quote, miraculous recovery from the injury on his hand, and then drive back home to Waterbury. Quote, it's totally preposterous, end quote. The judge addressed both the prosecution and defense counsel at the close of arguments, commending their, quote, magnificent statements and their work throughout the arduous proceedings. Judge John C. Blue then informed the 12-member jury that they could elect a lesser charge for Edward Grant, such as manslaughter, if they believe the evidence showed he hadn't intended to kill Penny, but only inflict serious physical harm. The difference in maximum sentences was a matter of 35 years. Deliberations were extensive and heated. Henry Lee wrote that at one point over the course of the several days-long deliberation, jurors were heard shouting at each other from behind the closed doors. When the jury finally returned, the foreman clutching a slip of paper that held their decision, it was a day nearly 30 years in the making. Four suspects, two arrests, and one trial later, the verdict could end it all with a real sense of finality, of closure. Or it could tear out the last page of Penny Sarah's book, leaving it all unfinished. After three and a half long days, Edward Grant's fate was finally sealed. The verdict was guilty. At his sentencing hearing, 
Edward Grant spoke to the judge, professing his innocence once again, while also saying he was sorry for all that Penny's family had endured. Penny's younger sister spoke directly to Edward Grant at the sentencing. She told him, quote, If you had come forward 29 years ago, maybe I would not have had to look in my father's haunted eyes. You turned time into our enemy. I've spent 70% of my life looking over my shoulder, wondering if some acquaintance could have been the murderer. End quote. The judge sentenced Edward Grant to 25 years to life in prison. Edward Grant's defense team would appeal the conviction on several points, but those appeals would not be successful. According to the Connecticut Prison System Inmate Search, Edward Grant is still incarcerated at the McDougal Walker Correctional Institution in Suffield, Connecticut, a high to maximum security level facility. Penny's younger sister, Rosemary, was Penny's only surviving immediate family member when her case finally went to trial. And Rosemary was there when Edward Grant heard the verdict that he managed to evade for nearly three decades. Rosemary told the New Haven Register that the day was bittersweet, knowing that her father wasn't there to share in the closure of it all. Quote, I feel so honored and privileged that I had a father who had the strength to pursue this as he did. I just wish he were here to reap the benefits. It's a great day, but it's hard. It's very hard also. End quote. Rosemary left the courthouse on the day the verdict was read and bought an armful of flowers, carnations for Penny, roses for her father, and daisies for her mother. She laid each of the blooms on their headstones. Rosemary reflected on the end of a long, uncertain, and heartbreaking chapter of her life and what it meant for her sister and her late father. Quote, I think that she is at peace, as well as my father, because they know that I'm okay and that I've made it through. This part of my life is over. End quote. Rosemary was just 16 years old when she lost her sister, who'd become like a mother after they lost theirs to cancer years before. A quote from Rosemary in the New Haven Register hit me hard. She said, She was my big sister, and she was like a mother. We were just that summer becoming buddies, but I idolized my sister as a kid. Thank you for listening to Dark Down East. Sources cited and referenced for this episode are listed at darkdowneast.com. Please follow Dark Down East on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you could, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I love to hear what you think of the show and what you want to hear next, and reviews are really the best way to support this show and the cases I cover. If you have a personal connection to a case and you want me to cover it on this podcast, please contact me at hello at darkdowneast.com. Thank you for supporting this show and allowing me to do what I do. I'm honored to use this platform for the families and friends who have lost their loved ones, and for those who are still searching for answers in cold missing persons and homicide cases. I'm not about to let those names or their stories get lost with time. I'm Kylie Lowe, and this is Dark Down East. There's a story behind every murder, but is there an ending? That's the question being asked by Murder True Crime Stories, a Crime House original podcast powered by Pave Studios. I'm Carter Roy. 
Join me as I tell the story of a famous solved or unsolved murder. New episodes release every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Murder, colon, True Crime Stories.